Open your, uh, your Bible. Hi, honey. <laughs> Open your Bible, if you would, to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 2. And you can hold your place there and turn to John chapter 15. We're going to be spending some time in both this morning. So last week we ended in Acts 2.36, and that's where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, Peter had, it's the day of Pentecost. We've been in this chapter for a few weeks now. And the day of Pentecost was, uh, it was 50 days after Jesus had performed the work of redemption on humanity's behalf. The Holy Spirit was poured out 10 days after he had ascended there in Bethany up uh, and being received into the cloud. And here the, they had been gathered with 120 people in the upper room. And there in the upper room, they'd been waiting in one accord for the promise of the Father. That's what Jesus had said. Go back to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. And they had. And as they were waiting here on Pentecost morning, all of a sudden there was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. And then there was... Uh, the appearance of tongues of fire on each one's head. And the people began to speak in known languages, in tongues, known languages at that time. And the people around them, the people around the, the disciples were hearing what they were saying in their native language. This was a supernatural, miraculous, powerful moment as the church was being birthed. So it says that they, at first they were filled with wonder, and then we're told in chapter 2 that their wonder turned to perplexity. They, were, they began to scratch their heads saying, what on earth or what in heaven is going on here? And they began to wonder, and they were, they were questioning, we don't understand. This is something definitely something very powerful going on, but we don't get it. And that's when Peter, boldly now, filled with the Holy Spirit, moments before, stands up and he begins to speak and to proclaim boldly. And he begins to tell them about this Jesus, whom, by the way, you murdered. And, and that he, he goes through and he demonstrates from the scripture, from the Old Testament, how it was always in the plan of God that Jesus would come, that he would die for the sins of the people, that he would be the Lamb of God, sacrificed. Verse 36, as he wraps up, he says, Therefore, tell all the house of Israel... Uh, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, says it twice, both Lord and Christ. So in keeping with the context of what's going on here in chapter 2, it's important that we maintain the flow of the passage. Uh, and so Peter, as he's speaking boldly, when he got up, he said, listen up, essentially. That's how it translates in verse 22. Uh, and he begins to tell them this Jesus was a man attested by God, to them by miracles and wonders and signs. We looked last week at what the purpose was in the signs and the wonders. They're never, underscore, an end unto themselves. This is never to be the Holy Ghost talent show. Uh, and it sickens me when I see people do that and they treat the things of God in that manner. God's purpose in the signs and wonders was they were designed to attest. They were designed to validate the messenger. But they went further than that in validating the message. We talked about Nicodemus last week. When he came to Jesus at night, he said, you're from God. I know that because of the things that you're doing, the signs and the wonders. Now, Jesus knew that Nicodemus' profession was 
uh, it only went part way. He went on to share the message. You, Nicodemus, you need to be born from above. That's the message. He tells Nick that the, the miracles, the signs and the wonders, yeah, they were to attest to who I am but they're also to attest to what I have done, what I will do in that case, as he was on that side of the cross before he went to Calvary. Now, Peter here in Acts chapter 2, he reaches into the Old Testament, gives us three different passages where he demonstrates, uh, speaking to the crowd in Jerusalem on that Pentecost Sunday, uh, he tells them prophetically of how Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. He, He essentially tells them that Jesus did not stay dead. This guy who you murdered, He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the tomb. He'd risen from the dead. And when he rose, he rose with power. Dunamis. That's the Greek word. Some people liken that to dynamite. I think that's messy. (laughs) I would much prefer translating that word dunamis to dynamic. He rose with a powerful dynamic in his life. And that same power, the power of the Holy Spirit, was being poured out upon each one who by faith would come on this day, on Pentecost. So the question becomes, what about that power? What is it about this power that that makes this day so different? What is it about that power that makes my life so different from when I was walking this earth in my unregenerate, in my dead state? Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you were dead. You weren't just kind of dead. You were dead, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us. Not as a result of things that we did, not not works, but because he's merciful, because he's gracious. We've been saved by grace through faith. So as we look at this, as we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning, I want to go again and visit John chapter 15. We'll look at the last two verses of chapter 15, and then we'll get into chapter 16 for a bit before we get back to Acts chapter 2, and we wrapped up the chapter there. Uh, he says in John 15, 26 and 27, he, Jesus is speaking here. This is the night that he was going to be betrayed. He, they're on their way. They have left the upper room just to set the background. They've let the, left the upper room. Last verse in chapter 14 says, Jesus says, come, let us go from here. And in J- John chapter 15 on into John 16, they're on their way to the garden. So I imagine him walking through the city late at night, the, the early hours of the morning, we're told. And he's, he's giving his men sort of parting instructions. I mean, if, if he knew, and he did, that he was going to go to the cross, he would be on the cross and in the tomb by this time the next day. The things that he would have to share with his men would be extremely important. So he's telling them, we're going to break into the middle of uh, him telling them about the Holy Spirit coming. He says in verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify of me. And you will also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So when he talks about this helper, the Greek word there is parakletos or the paraclete. It's the comforter. It's the one he calls him the comforter in other passages. He's the one that will come alongside. That's what the word paraclete means. It means to lay down alongside, to come alongside you. He will come alongside and empower you. We're seeing that on Pentecost with Peter and with the crowd as he's going through these things there in Jerusalem on that day. So now Jesus, before these events, this is what? Seven weeks before. 
telling his guys, this is what's going to happen. Somebody's going to come. He's the helper, the spirit of truth. He'll testify of me and you will bear witness because you've been with me. So who is the spirit of truth that Jesus refers to here? And, and doctrinally, theologically, it's important that we understand who the Holy Spirit is. First of all, he is the third person of the Trinity. Uh, we look at the Holy Trinity. We are absolutely Trinitarian in our theology. You don't have to understand it to reckon it to be so. God manifests in three persons and yet is one essence, essentially one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he says here, and we see the Trinity at work here in what Jesus is saying to these guys. He says the Son is going to send the Spirit who comes from the Father. So we see all three persons of the Trinity at work here. As to the work of redemption, you could look at it as though the Father's place is the Father willed it, the Son accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit applies it. And the Spirit of God is the one who gives us the ability to apply God's word to our lives. Very important we understand. And we also have to understand that the Holy Spirit is co-equal with God. He's not lesser somehow. He's a person, a distinct person. He's not an it. It makes me mildly crazy. And if you do that, I'm not picking at you. I'm just saying it makes me mildly crazy when I hear someone referring to the Holy Spirit as it. Um, He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not an essence. He's not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit, as I said, is a distinct person. He has a will. He's not a plaything. Oh, how often down through the ages, beginning here in the first century, men have treated the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit as though some sort of divine plaything, something to be toyed with, something to be shown off. Uh, watch, if you watch any amount of religious programming, <laughs> so-called, uh, you see that, that he is treated very, very poorly by charlatans. It's understand, the understanding that we need to have. It's vital, folks, that we understand the Holy Spirit. Because if, if I did treat him as a thing, if, if I looked at the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, then the question would become, and I see this out there, there are entire groups that are promoting this, will be how much of the Holy Spirit do I have? As though we're competing. As opposed to how much of me does the Holy Spirit have? That's the right approach. How much, am I, how much of my heart is yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit within me, outworking from my life? Reject the nonsense. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll spot it. If you study God's word, if you're a student of God's word, you'll see it. Reject it. And men who are full of themselves out there parading the Holy Spirit as though he was something to be entertained by. The point in all of this is that Jesus' respect for the Holy Spirit as his equal is evident. Another thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Yeah, grieved. You can cause the Holy Spirit grief. You can't do that with an impersonal force. You can with a person. He can be quenched. I don't know about you, but I I know of times of great conviction in my life where I quenched the work of the Holy Spirit. Nope, I'm not going to go that way. I'm uncomfortable or I'm embarrassed or whatever the case may be. We can quench the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be sinned against. 
The third thing we look at here with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we must understand the importance of God's word and words and understanding the person and the work of the spirit. Uh, It's critical. Again, as we understand, we see that there are two words, two Greek words used for the word. When we talk about Jesus being the logos of God, logos loosely relates to the written word. There's also another word that is the spoken word, and that's the word rhema. And when Jesus in John chapter 17 talks about, Father, I have given them the words that you have given me. You see both of those words in play. I have given them the rhema. I have spoken to them the things that you've spoken to me. And God, when God speaks to us, it will always be by his spirit through his word, rhema. And when we look at that, he is speaking to us. It will be by his spirit, rhema, through his word, logos. It will always be that way. God will not violate his word. And we have to, it's very, very important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and he will testify. He will define Christ in our lives. When he says that, he says the spirit of truth will testify. That's what he does. He defines who Jesus is. He doesn't bring glory to himself. He he, he is glorified. He's glorious, but he doesn't do it to glorify himself. He does it to glorify Christ. Now he says, you'll bear witness. Yeah, the Holy Spirit uh, gives, he, he defines Christ to me. But then as we bear witness, we disclose Christ to others. And circling back to Acts chapter two, it's exactly what Peter is doing there at Pentecost now filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. Moving into John chapter 16, uh, we're going to look at verses 4 through 11. and not going to spend a lot of time there, but it's important, again, that we follow through with uh, this whole thing that Jesus taught his men about the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 4, he says, But these things I've told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Guess when that time would be? We're seeing it in Acts chapter 2. And these things I didn't say to you at the beginning because I was with you. These things will happen. You will understand these things. And they didn't have a point of reference. He's saying, you'll understand these things when the time is right. Right now, I'm with you. There's a time coming when I won't be with you. And that's when these things will come to bear. He'd been speaking these things with his men as they walked through the city. They spent three and a half years with him as he taught them, as he discipled them. And very often in the gospel, you see that the men were confused or perplexed because they didn't yet understand because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He had not yet gone to the cross. And they couldn't be understood until the spirit was given. Here in, in John 16, again, they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be betrayed. Now, as we look at this in context of Acts chapter 2, as we fast forward, here's Peter speaking to this huge crowd. More than, as I said, seven weeks later, Jesus was no longer with them. And the Holy Spirit's bringing things to his and the people's remembrance. He's opening their hearts. So what's different between what Jesus is telling his men then that left them scratching their heads and what Peter is speaking to the crowd now? It makes sense. Because the Spirit of God is working on both sides. He's working through Peter as Peter speaks, but he's also bringing conviction. And we'll look at that to the hearts and the minds of the people. Verse 5, he says, but now I go away to him. This is in John 16, uh, verse 5. But now I go away, away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? 
But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. These guys had thought, I mean, prior to the cross, they, they didn't have any point of reference with regard to the things which were to come. And their focus, it was limited to their own immediate need and, and to their own understanding. Jesus had just told them he's going to leave. And they had given up a lot. I mean, think about it, guys. From the moment that there these fishermen were on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus had come, follow me. Or when he comes to Matthew, the task will come, follow me. They had given up their lives for him. They had walked with him. They had ministered with him. And they thought in their own minds that he was going to set up his kingdom and that he was going to begin to rule from Jerusalem at that time. And yet God would not be bound. Jesus would not be bound to their understanding, to their wishes. He had greater work to do. So the guys, his men are thinking, well, now what? And they're grieved. They're realizing that they're losing him. Sorrows filled their hearts. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, there's that paraclete, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. What's happening in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost? He was sent to them. Now, He's telling them this after telling them he's going to leave. And I got to think about this. Have you ever had somebody tell you something really difficult, uh, really sad, sorrowful, grievous, and then follow that comment up with some positive outcome to what they had just said? It's happened in my life. And it's difficult in the midst of the pain of that moment to not feel as though we're being patronized. Somebody says, hey, you know, it's okay. Everything's going to work out. Or, you know, that which doesn't kill you will make you stronger. I've heard things like that. I mean, we do that. But be clear, Jesus is not patronizing his men here. He's telling them the truth. There's a direct benefit to them in his departure. They just can't see it at this point. They wouldn't see it until the day of Pentecost. He's talking about the mysterious helper, the paraclete, whom he'd spoken of earlier. Verse 8. He says, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is the first of the threefold work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus goes on here in John 16. We're not going to cover the other two, but he says he'll convict the world of sin, um, excuse me, and righteousness and judgment, and that he will also lead you into all truth. If you understand spiritual things, it's because the Holy Spirit is guiding you into truth, revealing truth. When you read your Bible and you're coming up with way more than just a book report, it's because the Holy Spirit is giving you understanding. He says, finally, he'll glorify me. How much, again, how much of what is promoted out there as being the work of the Holy Spirit glorifies some other thing, glorifies a group or glorifies a man or glorifies some weird thing. But here, speaking of the first of the threefold work, ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says he will convict. Now, there, I, I wrote down three kind of loose definitions of the word convict. And the first is, is to find guilty. If you're convicted in court, you're found guilty. You've been convicted. In this case, to be convicted of sin. The second is to hold a deep, strong belief. I hold some very strong convictions. And and it's my conviction that, and you can fill in the blank with something that you feel very strongly about. 
The third, and I think this is interesting, is, is to convict, is to become undeceived. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelieving people. And when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, very often what happens is they become undeceived. The people here at Pentecost uh, that Peter is speaking to, and it's way more than a crowd of 120, now he's speaking to thousands, likely in the temple courts, would be undeceived. They would become undeceived. They had been, they had been filled with their own ideas. They had, they had not had uh, any real conviction about the things that they had done as they had tortured and crucified, executed Christ. And yet now, with the Holy Spirit having been given, conviction is coming to them. So he says in verse 9 of sin, because they don't believe in me. I think that's fascinating. Not sins, because we, all of us, have a long list in our lives, but of sin. Speaking about one sin. Now, we live in what I call a pseudo-moralistic society. <laughs> it's because it's kind of an anything-goes environment out there in the world. And what constitutes sin differs from one individual or one group or one ideology to the next. It's, it's very subjective. And that's because the natural man judges according to his own conscience. And that conscience, by the way, is fallen. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, people's consciences being seared as with an iron, sealed off. So conscience convicts of sin subjectively. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read this. For it, Paul, the Apostle, he, he says, he's talking about the Gentiles. He says, for when the Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things of the law, these also not having the law are a law unto themselves. That's where that term comes from. That person's a law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, their conscience bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. He talks about the, the, the subjective conviction of sin. My thoughts are either excusing me or they're accusing me. Because why? Because I'm a law unto myself. And that's the unbelieving heart. That's the unbelieving mind. It's not so with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin objectively. As we've been studying the book of Acts, the sin of unbelief is tantamount to rejecting both the message and the messenger. And virtually every sin, every sin that a man or a woman commits is forgivable, except one, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God will work in somebody's heart over a lifetime, bringing conviction towards the sin of unbelief. Now, I want to, I want to make something clear here. Note that when I'm talking about the sin of unbelief, I'm not speaking of the lack of mental assent. What I mean by that is mental assent doesn't constitute true faith. That's, oh, well, I believe in God. Well, the Bible says the demons believe and they shudder. Oh, well, you know, I was born a Christian. Oh, really? <laughs> then you need to be born again because you ain't. Oh, well, you know, I made a, a profession of faith at, at summer camp in high school when I went with the church and I'm 45 years old, but doesn't that count? No, it doesn't. That's mental assent. That's not the stuff of true faith. Of, of, of that, that is still operating in the sin of unbelief. What we're talking about is the stuff of changed lives. 
So the question becomes then, is, does that mean that our salvation is now based on works? Absolutely not. Not at all. We're saved by grace through faith alone. And it is a universal principle that you will always act on what you believe. Always, always, always. The word for faith used over 90 times in the Gospel of John is the word pistis or pistuo. And what it means is a a sincerely held belief. It's like if I told you that there's a crack in this ceiling and it's about to collapse, if you believed me, you would not remain in your seat. You would act on that. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about. So when we're talking about the sin of unbelief, it's not somebody that's just kind of wishy-washy and all that. No, they're still in that unbelief. It's talking about somebody who has never come to a place of saying, I'm going to let the weight of my life down on Jesus. And I, I want him to be Lord and Savior, Lord and Christ, as Peter is saying there in Acts chapter 2, in my life. I'll structure my life around what's important to me. That's the point. Therefore, to reject until one's dying breath is unforgivable. Because the forgiveness that Jesus offers through the cross has never been applied to one's life. It has been consistently rebuffed and rejected. And we live in a Christ-rejecting world. Let's be real. And part of why we want to do this evangelism training is not just so that we have skills, because we want to reach out. We want to be effective in our witness. We want to be able to to share the gospel in a way that makes sense, that God would open people's hearts and minds. Time's short. I truly believe that. And yeah, preachers have been saying that for centuries. But I truly believe that. And I believe that there's more evidence now that time is short than ever before. And there's a universal cry that I see in talking with other pastors, other church leaders, the time is short. So it's not based on works. We're saved by grace through faith alone, and we'll act on what we believe. Essentially, what's being said here is there will not be anyone who in heaven who doesn't want to be there. And added to that, more important than that, any who want to be there may come. doesn't matter what you've done. God doesn't grade on the curve. Do you ever have that in high school? I had a a teacher that graded on the curve. High school biology. I thought I had done great, but there were a handful of people that had done a lot greater. And so I got a low grade. I was like, that's not fair. That's not how God is. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. He puts, he groups liars and murderers in the same sentence, headed for judgment in the book of Revelation. So it's not like you're kind of saved. You're either there, you're either, you either belong to him or you don't. And that's something that each of us must work out. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he's talking about when he says that, is that we need to understand where we stand with the Lord individually. And when I understand the nature of his love, I don't know why anybody would not want to be there. Verse 10, he says he's convicting the world of sin. And here in verse 10 of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. Now, what does that have to do with righteousness? Why does he say, because I go to my father? Why is this a reference to his ascension? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Folks, the only righteousness accepted in heaven is perfect righteousness, perfection. There's only one person in all of history who has possessed that. And he went to his father. He, he, he couldn't not go to heaven because Jesus had led a perfect sinless life. 
That's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Essentially what he's saying is there's two ways to get to heaven. You can be absolutely perfect in every conceivable way, or you can wear the righteousness that Jesus gives through the cross. So the spirit convicts of righteousness. And that righteousness is imputed in our lives. By simply coming to faith in Christ, he says, take my righteousness. We looked at that when we studied the book of Romans at length. Righteousness is imputed. I am dipped in the righteousness of Christ. No longer do I have to try to work out my own because I can never work it out enough. Verse 11, he says, you're convicted of sin and righteousness in verse 11 of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit convicts. He warns of coming judgment. Now, here's the linkage between sin and righteousness and judgment as Jesus presents here in John chapter 16. The thing that will keep you out of a relationship with God and ultimately keep you out of heaven is sin. When Jesus was crucified, he paid for the sins of humanity and literally took the full impact of the wrath of God upon himself. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somehow there was a tearing in God himself as the father placed the sins, the, the wrath, his wrath for the sins of humanity placed them on the son. We don't understand it, but it, I will guarantee you that Jesus suffered greatly physically as he went to the cross. But I believe that the physical suffering that he endured was nothing compared to being for the first time in his entire life utterly alone, as the Father pulled back somehow, turned away, and put our sins on his Son. The thing that's required to get into heaven is righteousness, perfect righteousness, as I mentioned. You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough good deeds. You can't live a good enough life to get there. The standard is perfection. And guess what? You and I ain't got it. (laughs) We stand convicted. Conviction, as I mentioned, in a court of law, that brings judgment. What's the first thing that happens when when somebody's convicted of a crime? They're waiting for their sentence. That's the judgment. However, by my simply believing that Jesus has taken the wrath of God for my sin and lived a life in perfect righteousness before his Father in my place, I no longer fear judgment because the God of this world has been judged. I no longer am under his dominion. I'm a child of the king. Essentially, this ship is sinking and you or I don't need to be on it. It comes to our will. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter sums up a very direct, hard-hitting, convicting sermon As he preached to the crowd, I'll read verse 36 again, and then we'll move on. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He says, look, this guy you murdered, he is currently both Lord and Christ. Now, verse 37 begins their response. It says, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So, so strong was the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of these people that they were cut to the heart. They were pierced. Now, the Greek word for that is the word katanuso. 
And it's the same word that's used in Jesus's crucifixion. When the nails were driven into his hands and his feet, they pierced. That's the word. It's a powerful, strong word. It has both a physical connotation and a spiritual connotation. They were convicted. They were cut. The words used here, it's, it's an idiom, and it means that people were greatly troubled. They were burdened. They had the weight of Peter's words just sitting on them. And, and, and going from marveling to being perplexed to now being convicted, going, what on earth do we do? What do we do with this? They understood that they had blood on their hands. Peter's anointed words, coupled with the Spirit's conviction, had brought a deep, visceral conviction in their hearts. I don't know about you. This is free. It's not in my notes. There have been times in my life and in my walk with Jesus that I have had an extremely heavy weight of conviction. I spent a period of time trying to walk away from the Lord as a younger Christian. Didn't work too well. And I remember the conviction that I felt. I was sitting in, I had my office set up in my bedroom and I was at my desk and and I was praying and saying, Lord, there's just so much loss in my life. Your conviction is just resting on my soul and I need to respond. And I'll never forget, I sank out of my chair just gently onto my knees. And I began to pray and to respond to his conviction. I didn't call my buddies afterwards, say, hey, I just recommitted my life to the Lord. I didn't, you know, I didn't, there was no fanfare. It was just a simple prayer saying, God, please forgive me. Restore my life. Take this battered, dented up, sinful heart and make it something worthwhile. God's faithful. He's in the business of restoring lives. I stand before you as proof. Kataniso, pierced. Has the Spirit of God pierced your heart? Is there something that comes to your heart, your mind, as we look at this this morning? I want to encourage you, act upon that conviction. Don't brush it off. Don't push it back. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent, that every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's response is simple, and it's one word. It's profound. It's to the point. He says, repent. Don't think about it. Don't rationalize it. Don't dismiss it away. Repent. Now, the Hebrew term for repentance means, to cha- it means a change of action. The Greek term means a change of mind. And I think it's both. Essentially, repentance is a willingness to change. It doesn't mean a total cessation of sin. If you've been walking with the Lord for long, you know that. It also doesn't mean it's a license to sin after you repent because that kind of defeats the whole purpose of repentance. What it does mean is that you have a newfound desire to please God, not yourself. When he speaks of being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, I don't think that the scripture supports this as a reference to water baptism being essential to salvation. Now that there are many people that try to make that case. Uh-uh, I, I don't buy it. <laughs> there are far more references to salvation in God's word where there's no mention of baptism. I'm going to give you a couple of plausible interpretations. Take your pick or something else. Now, the Greek word here, when he talks about being baptized, the word, it's baptizo. And it simply means to immerse. It also can mean to wash. 
Now, it was common knowledge in Jesus' day for the Jews to use a mikvah. It's called a mikvah. It was a ceremonial bath. And they used it to become ceremonially clean. It's symbolic of removing the defilement of the flesh. Now, Peter, being Jewish, understood this. And as he was preaching to a Jewish crowd at Pentecost, was letting them know the rules had changed. No longer would one require repeated ceremonial washings because that's how that worked. You had to keep going back. You had to keep getting clean because you kept getting unclean. But through immersion in Christ, one could be completely, permanently cleansed. And that is how it works. Permanently cleansed. Now, here's another view. Uh, This is the one I hold to, is that Peter understood the baptism of John. John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. In his comments uh, to the people here, he sees these events as the fulfillment of what John says in Luke chapter 3, talking about the baptism of the Spirit, which has just happened at Pentecost. In Luke 3.16, we read John answered, John the Baptist answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. I immerse you in water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, he will baptize you, immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I believe that that's what Peter's getting at. He's not talking, making a claim for salvation through water baptism. And finally here, with reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, these people had never understood salvation as a gift. They, <laughs> they had spent their entire lives in Judaism under the law of Moses and under a perverse religious system which so far had, had departed so far from the law of Moses that the, the religious hucksters of their day just tied up, as Jesus said, you tie up heavy loads for men. You go about, go about on land and sea for one proselyte. When you have him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. You devour widows' houses for pretense. The religion of Jesus' day, of these men's day, was not true Judaism, as God intended. It was a perversion of it. These people had spent their lives under a a, a yoke, a heavy yoke, a burden. And now Peter says in verse 39, he says, the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit wouldn't be limited to some exclusive bunch But he's saying, look, this promise, the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being poured out is for you. It's not just for you, it's for your kids and it's for their kids. The Holy Spirit is something that he wants to come in and to do business in your heart, in your life and in your family. This is something that is available freely to any and all. Another thing about this is God until now had been the one who was far off. He was separated from the people. You remember back in the tabernacle, only one day a year could the high priest go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies there above the Ark of the Covenant, the the, the presence of God existed. Not out with the people, but because of people's sin, not having been atoned for, had to be separate. And then after that, in the temple, in Solomon's temple, and then in Zerubbabel's temple, when they came back from captivity, and now in Herod's temple, there was a separation. There was a veil. It was a thick curtain that separated man from the presence of God. He was far off. But now, 
through the work of Christ, God's very presence had come into the hearts of men and women as a free gift through simply trusting in the work of his son. Amazing. I I read this, I look at this, and I just think absolutely amazing. That he would, when the veil was torn as Jesus hung on that cross, he was saying, look, the way is open to any and all, for you and for your children. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter alludes to the gospel going to the Gentiles here when he refers to all who are afar off. Jesus alluded to the same. In John ten sixteen. he says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Speaking of the Gentile nations, who would, as we go through the book of Acts, who would soon receive the gospel of Christ. Verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now, Luke records only a portion of Peter's sermon that day. He tells us that Peter had a lot more to say. I think it's interesting when he uses the word perverse here, he says to be saved from this perverse generation. The word is scolios. It's where we get the word scoliosis. You know what that is if you have back problems. It means you have a bent or a crooked spine. And that's, what he's, that's how it's rendered here. It's, it, 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 the word here means unscrupulous, perverse, or crooked. He's saying, be safe from this crooked generation, this scolios. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That is just remarkable to me. 3,000 people got up that morning It was just another day. They heard of the ruckus that was going on from that upper room and they gathered because there was stuff going on and people were scratching their heads trying to figure out all this stuff and hearing these foreign languages perfectly in their own native tongue and seeing the flames of fire on people's heads and this miraculous event that's taking place. 3,000 of them would never be the same from that day forward. Now, I mentioned before that this is a remarkable verse also insofar as 3,000 souls were added on Pentecost and it corresponds directly to the 3,000 souls who were killed when Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai. That was the same day. It was the very first Pentecost, 50 days out from Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Tell me God's word doesn't tie together, that, it, that there aren't just miraculous, marvelous, scenic vistas in here that as we study and God opens his word to us by his Holy Spirit, that there are things, I'll tell you what, that just lights my fire. I get so excited when I see this kind of linkage. 3,000 souls added to their numbers that day. The same day because the law kills, but the spirit brings life. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in verses 4 through 8. We read, And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, that's the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, 
which glory was passing away. Remember, he came down from the mountain. They had to put a towel over his face. And he was cooling off. He wasn't increasing. He was, he was, the glory was fading. Paul says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Because we increase in glory. The 3,000 souls in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, that would only be the beginning. There's been a constant succession of Spirit-filled believers since that day. If you belong to Christ, this applies directly to you. Directly. You're in that succession. You're part of what Peter spoke of when he said, this promise is for you and for your children. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So here in the very beginning moments of the church, we see an indisputable pattern that plays out over and over again as we study God's word and that which hopefully plays out in our own lives. Notice the things they continued steadfastly in when they were together. The first we see is the apostles' doctrine, teaching. The apostles were being faithful to what God had called them to do. And we'll look at it when we get uh, into chapter 7, when the, the, the Hellenists, or they, they complained about the widows, and the apostles said, look, you know, we have to minister the word. We need some help. And we'll get into all that. But they were committed to teaching. And the, the apostles' doctrine is what would come together and be the doctrine of the Christian church. They were expounding on the word of God. People were being taught. The second thing we see here is fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now, maybe that was a reference to the Lord's table. Maybe not. It follows what they ate their meals together after that. But they enjoyed fellowship with one another. Koinonia is the Greek word. And what it means is it's where we get the word communion. When we talk about communion, that's koinonia. And what it is is a common union. And that common union that we share in Christ is different. And let me underscore this. It's different than friendship. I can have koinonia with friends. That's true. However, there's a big difference between getting together and talking about the game or talking about the roast at home and sharing common things in Christ. Fellowship. And I just, I'll say this too. When we talk about having potlucks and things like that, that's not just so that we can have fun. And I think they're fun. I really enjoy them. But we want to intentionally promote body life in this church. Why? Because communion is vital in the life of a healthy church. And we want to see that. I I purposely, and if you know me, you know that I don't start putting away chairs until that last person is ready to go. I don't care if I'm here till four o'clock. I truly don't. It's because we want to make sure that the ministry that's taking place, there's ministry that takes place as we get together and we share fellowship together that can't happen with pulpit ministry. Part of a healthy church is for us to spend time with one another. The third thing he talks about here is prayer. Being connected to the source. It's fair to say these new converts were hungry for truth. They're also hungry for community. I, I have two brothers. I'll just share this. I have one that lives in Northern California. He's been a believer for many years. He uh, lives across the street from the church. It's the church where I spent many years. I was ordained there and was one of the pastors there at one time. And then I have a brother that lives in Seattle that is not a believer and I look at the difference in their lives because one brother, he's, he is actually a Bible teacher. <laughs> he teaches on their midweeks sometimes. 
but, but he subjects himself to the teaching, the apostles' teaching. He, he has a community that is just remarkable. I mean, if, if he gets a toothache, there's four people at his door with meals. I mean, it's just remarkable. He just is part of this living, thriving community. I love seeing that here. And the other brother is so alone. It's a striking contrast for me in my life. I have such a burden. Pray for Bill. Hi, Bill. If you're watching, sorry, not picking on you. My point is, these people enjoyed community. They were hungry for the truth of God. And these are still the things that comprise the core of a healthy church, of life in the body of Christ. I call this the three-legged stool. Question, are you spending time in the Word individually, corporately? Are you devoted to fellowship with other believers in the church, outside the church? How does your prayer life look? Now, while there's other factors that come into play at times, in my dealing with folks who are in poor spiritual health, I've discovered that when one or more of these is weak or absent in someone's life, that person will struggle spiritually. They just will. Expanding on that, when any of these things are absent in a church, for my own good, I'm going to choose to not be a part of that church. And I recommend the same. Verse 43, it says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So now we're seeing the signs and wonders. Yes, Peter said that they attested to who Jesus was and what his message was. And now they're doing the signs and wonders through the apostles. And fear is coming upon every soul. Now the word, the Greek word here for fear is the word phobos. We get phobia from it. And these guys, they're not like paranoid. <laughs> That's not what's being said. But what it does indicate is a deep sense of reverence and awe. I tell people sometimes, you know, I, I'm, I'm never surprised anymore, but I'm constantly in awe of what the Lord does, of seeing the Lord move, to see him work in people's hearts and lives. But they were witnessing here, and again, this is the genesis of the church. This is the birth of the church. And and they're seeing sort of a holy atmosphere. And and that word's used, I'm not misusing it. But there was just some type of a sanctified atmosphere there that, that even the unbeliever, unsaved sinners, they were becoming aware of the sacredness of the things which were happening. They, these people were set apart. The signs and wonders which Jesus had done now being done by the apostles, they, now filled with the Holy Spirit, were causing the people that same wonder and amazement and uh, being used to attest to the messenger, Jesus Christ. And the message, the gospel of salvation. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, (laughs) I'm going to apply this. Hopefully not the way you think. The selling of property in common possession of the proceeds, I believe probably implied that the early church expected the Lord to return very quickly and to establish his kingdom. I think that's part of why they abandoned that practice pretty quickly. It might have been also divine guidance in the first century because these people's lives were about to get really tough, a whole lot more difficult than they had been. And they would come to depend on one another uh, in ways that they never had to. 
It wouldn't be long before the religious leaders in Jerusalem would begin to ostracize people from this thing called the way. We'll see that in the book of Acts, where they would, they would take away their right to come to the temple. And when you lost your temple rights, you lost your family, you lost your livelihood. When you were excommunicated from that, it was a big deal in Judaism. It becomes so difficult that years later, as Christians in Israel were under severe persecution, that the Apostle Paul would collect an offering, bring it back from the Gentile churches to present it to the church at Jerusalem. Now, I don't think that that's a practice that we're going to be having here. By the way, too, I also make a little political comment. Holding everything in common was not socialism or communism. It was voluntary. It was something that they did in their culture in their day. Added to that, their goods were not evenly distributed, but they were given to meet the needs which arose. So they they sort of banked them, and if there was a need, they took care of it. So let me encourage you, we're not going to be announcing the formation of the Calvary Chapel Commune anytime soon. <laughs> However, I believe it's important that we not miss what's being said here. And the point in all of this is our lives as believers ought to be marked by a generosity which exceeds and goes beyond giving from our excess. As with so many kingdom principles, the emphasis comes down to the condition of one's heart, not how much one gives or how much one is able to give. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus here uh, is sitting opposite the treasury at the temple in Mark 12, 41. It says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrans, whatever that is. So he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury for they put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So folks, the point is this. We don't talk about giving much around here because in the conviction I had when we stopped receiving an offering was, you know, I'm telling people to trust God for their finances and we as a church need to trust God for our finances. So we don't talk about that. Uh, You won't find me ever unless there's a special need like when we've done offerings for Afghanistan or for... um, Ukraine, that kind of thing. You won't find me asking for, for money. That's just not, not it. We're trusting God to put it on people's hearts to give so the ministry can go forward. <laughs> it's kind of a reality. Um, however, giving is very definitely a biblical principle. The Bible tells us the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And the word translates hilarious. <laughs> so it's just like, okay, Lord, it's yours. I, whatever, you know, that kind of an attitude. He just, it just, he, God delights in that. Why? Because it's not 10% of what I have that belongs to the Lord. That's Old Testament in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. It's 100%. And I'm not saying you've got to give 100%. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that everything I have, the Bible says, what do you have that you haven't received? And so giving is very much a New Testament principle. And it's very much a way to honor God. And it's not just our generosity with our money. It's generosity with our time, generosity with our gifts. I call it our time, our talent, and our treasure. 
Those are the ways that we give back to the Lord. So enough said on that. <laughs> you guys know me very, if you've known me very long, you know, I just, I just don't like talking about it. But when we come to passages that talk about it, we're going to talk about it. That's just how it is. Verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and baking, uh, break, baking bread, breaking bread from house to house. That could be baking. I don't know. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I love that. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I love the King James, such as would be saved. So with the same unity of purpose that they had, that we saw in the upper room with 120, and now we've got this church of 3,000 and growing, says that they're in one accord. They're of the same mind. They're excited. This is something new and this is something powerful and this is something that goes beyond my ability to explain. And yet God has touched my heart in such a profound, deep, piercing way that I can't not be a part of this thing that's going on. We see the church expanding, remaining in one accord, remaining of one mind. Why? Because I've mentioned it before, folks, the body of Christ is bar none, the largest living organism on this planet is driven by the life of God himself manifested through the hearts and lives of his people. That's true. He's the one that unifies our hearts. He's the one that gives us grace. And he says, let me, let me just pour out my love in your life. And I only have one requirement, <laughs> give it away. Be gracious with one another. Love one another the way I love you. Be forgiving with one another. Being long, long-suffering with one another. And the list goes on. It says that they met in the temple. Now, as we'll see in chapter 3, it was probably a place called Solomon's Portico. Uh, there was a colonnade, a, a, a row of columns that lined the east and the west uh, elevations of the, the court of the Gentiles in, on the Temple Mount. Uh, the stones are on the street below, by the way still sitting there from when the Romans pushed them off when they swept the Temple Mount clean in 70 AD. But it's probably there. It's where Jesus would have taught. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a common gathering place for people to come and to hear the rabbis teach. And I've mentioned before, I just have this visual in my mind. It's like, here's a row of columns, a row of columns, a row of columns, a row of columns. And and they would gather between these columns, and I don't know, maybe 150 people could gather in the, the shade, because there's a shaded area under there, between each one. And it's like, you know, here's a few people for rabbi, whoever, here's a few people for this guy, here's a few people, and here's Jesus. There's people flooding out into the courtyard from the column, because he was a very popular teacher. And when he would go and teach in the temple, that's where he would go. It would be the court of the Gentiles in Solomon's portico. It would also be a great place for these guys to go to expose people to the gospel, to expose them to this miraculous thing that was happening as the church was birthed and the spirit was being poured out. What a place to evangelize. And they were. One of the, he talks about here, he, he says that, that, that um, they were praising God, having favor with all of the people, continuing in one accord with joy. As we wrap up this morning, I want to talk about joy for a minute. One of the sub-themes in the book of Acts, in the whole book, is joy. 
A healthy church is a joyful church. True. Even in the midst of difficulty. And that doesn't mean that you don't have difficulty. We do. Every, every church does. But I praise God that we have a joyful body. We come alongside one another. I see it. I hear from different ones. I know that you're there for one another. And I love the fact that there is joy in our midst. Joy, you got to understand, it is not the same as happy. I can be unhappy and have joy because joy is a lot deeper. Joy is communicated to my spirit by the Holy Spirit. It's fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love. First word after that is joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and the rest. Happiness is communicated to me by my circumstances. I might have terrible circumstances and be very unhappy. And yet I can have joy. I'll never forget the first time that I experienced that in a profound way was when my mother died. Uh, I was asked to eulogize at her funeral, which was tough. (laughs) I was not happy. I was grieving. But she had given her life, her heart to Jesus. And and to get up there in front of my whole family and, and the rest of the crowd and to share that, I just was bubbling over with joy, even though I was crying in the meantime. It's not the same as happy. You can have joy. That's why the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength, period. It is. It's a birthright for Christians. It's an earmark of a healthy church. What a contrast as we wrap up. Life would be for these people. They'd been under this demanding, oppressive yoke of Pharisaic Judaism. As I mentioned, it wasn't Judaism. It was Pharisaic Judaism, which is not as God intended. What an amazing blessing their new life would be as the people's lives came together, breaking bread from house to house with gladness, simplicity of hearts. All the while, the Lord was adding to the church daily such as should be saved. I'm blessed. I love pastoring this church. I love you guys, every one of you. I love the fact that we are a New Testament church. As much as we can be, we take our cues from the book of Acts. We take the way that we go, come together from Acts chapter 2, focusing on the word of God, focusing on fellowship, focusing on prayer. The last thing he says here, too, from verse 47, you find it here. Verse 7, 47, you could add a fourth thing to that because they were also praising God. Worship, it's an integral part of a healthy church, to come together and to ascribe worth. That's what it means, worth-ship. And as we worship him in song, as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask you guys, sing out. Stop worrying about how you sound to the person next to you, because they probably sound about the same as you do. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Worship God for the things that he's done in your life, the things that he's doing in your life, and that which he's yet to do. Because I'll tell you what, walking with the Lord. (laughs) And if you remember the old Disneyland tickets, it's an e-ticket ride. And, uh, and he's faithful. He's good. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we wrap up this morning, uh, just I'm thankful, Lord, that I don't have to worry about building the church. I don't have to worry about any of the church. You, that's your job. And we yield to that. We pray, Lord, that you would reach out in our community, that you would draw people in that they would see the simplicity of the message and the simplicity of our worship and be attracted to that because we just don't want to put on a show. 
We want to break bread together. We want to be together, spending time together in simplicity of heart, as you say here. That's our goal. Just thank you, Lord, this morning for each one that's here, for each one that's within the sound of my voice online or uh, in our archives, whatever. Just pray, Father, that you would work powerfully in us. We yield to the working of your Holy Spirit afresh. Thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.